You know, one of the things that is a bit of a um, more heartbreaking experience for a pastor is to be pastoring long enough to watch people uh, who at one point were uh, with you when it came to the things of Christianity, but decided after a while to walk away. I had a conversation a few years ago with a young man who had been involved in the campus ministry I worked for at the University of Memphis. And um, he was really involved, had really plugged in. But after he graduated, he moved away to a large American city and uh, sort of uh, uh, started going sporadically to the church I had recommended for him. But before too long, he kind of went less and less and eventually stopped going at all. Uh, he met someone in that city who came from a decidedly religious, um, a little, little more religiously liberal background. Uh, and over time, the things that we had talked about that had meant so much to him in college just went away. By the time I caught up with him years later, he described it to me. Um, he said, you know, I think of my Christianity in college like I do an old girlfriend. You know, it was great while we had it. It was wonderful while it lasted. But, you know, I, I've just moved on. That was a nice thing in my past, but I've, I'm in a different place in my life. Well, never mind how weird it was for me to be placed as his college pastor in the role of the, uh, the jilted ex-girlfriend. Um, but that's what happens, isn't it? How people sort of drift away after time. But those kinds of conversations sort of set me out on a journey that I've not really stopped following. And that is to try to ask this question about what it is that makes people try Christianity and find it wanting. Or, or, or perhaps... Uh, get involved in it to some degree, but then walk away from it after they begin to experiencing life in a context where people don't believe. For some people, it's a real difficult intellectual question. They, 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 they don't feel like they can have the burning questions of logic answered, so they walk away. For other people, it's a lifestyle question. They're living in a way that they know is forbidden by the Bible, and they just decide one day that it's easier to live an unexamined life. But none of this is new, interestingly enough. People have been walking away from Christianity for, for centuries. What I do think is unique is this generation's way of dealing with people uh, who present them objections to Christianity. You know, I, I realize that we have a special opportunity this morning where the college students are back. We're so glad you're here. Did we mention that, that we're glad you're here? We're glad you're here. And I don't assume that for many of you, you came to college with the express purpose of walking away from the faith that you grew up with. I'm guessing that's not what you did. But it can still be unnerving if someone tried to talk you out of it. And frankly, for the adults in the room, a lot of us have forgotten what it was like to sit in a college classroom and hear, perhaps, maybe a, a history professor stand up and explain to you that the reason for Christianity's popularity over the last 2,000 years is due to explainable forces of political power. That is, Christians have suppressed and controlled and manipulated societies throughout the generations, but there's nothing cosmically significant about it. Other professors, like the philosophy professor, might tell you, well, you know, um, how do you really know what you believe is true? By the way, I think that's actually a good question to ask. But he'll be the first one to say, religion is just one of the ways in which people just try to make sense of their inner world. There's nothing unique about it in the cosmic or truth sense. And then finally, you wander over to psychology class where you have a conversation with him and the teacher explains that religion is just the way that 
human beings deal with this deep subconscious struggle to feel like they can live securely in life. But there's nothing true in it. It's just the way people are trying to cope. Like I said, none of these objections are new to Christians. We've been hearing them for a century. What is new is the way in which this generation has responded to those objections. And if I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. They'll say, well, of course those things may or may not be true. But that's why you have to have faith. I mean, if God made everything in the Bible totally obvious and Christianity was obvious, well, well, then everybody would be a Christian. But you have to believe. That's part of your job in doing this work of being a Christian. Do you th- hear the logic in that, though? Over here, you have this world of, of facts uh, where you've got scientific inquiry. You've got historical realities, things that really happened. But over here, you've got faith. You know, that blind leap into absurdity where you just embrace it and try to purge your mind of any kind of doubts and embrace whatever your life has for you. A number of years ago, I read a memoir by a journalist named Rick Bragg, and the title of it was called All Over But the Shoutin'. Bragg grew up in sort of the uh, sort of a northeastern hill country of Alabama with a very dear mother, and he writes the memoir as sort of a, a love letter to his mother. But his his mother was a very deeply religious, kind of country Pentecostal. And Bragg's whole book talks about how much she admired her, but could never get around to embracing her faith. And at one point, in his own words, he says that the reason why is because it just never happened to me. There were even times where he kind of wanted something to happen, something to wash over him. But it just never did. You know, that's the sort of view of faith where, you know, faith just kind of happens to you, like, like a cold that you catch, like the flu. It just sort of comes over me, and I'm that person. For a lot of people, when they abandon the faith because it's just not me anymore, it's because it doesn't fit who they've evolved into. You know, faith is for the faithful, not me. Now I realize some of you are thinking to yourself, well, maybe Les doesn't realize who he's talking to. Hey, we came to church this morning. That's not us. But is that really true? I've begun to notice how interesting and how powerful those lingering doubts as to whether or not Christianity is worth all this effort, how much those things wreak havoc in the life of people who go to church every week. In other words, I think that people who are trying to justify their interest in Christianity, they face this question every morning. Like, is this really worth fighting my children to get to this place on Sunday morning? Is this really worth dragging myself out of bed to do this every single Sunday morning? Well, today we are launching a brand new series at Christ Presbyterian Church that will actually take us all the way through to next May through the Gospel of Luke with a couple of breaks in December and January. But I want to introduce it this morning simply by saying this. The way in which we have a generation of people who are rejecting Christianity sounds nothing like the way in which Luke presents it. In other words, when Luke in his prologue that that Doug just read for us starts to talk about the faith, what he does not say is, well, you know what? The truth is, I mean, we're just kind of making up these stories. Once upon a time. And truthfully, it really probably doesn't make any sense. But you know what? Just believe it anyway, and it'll make your life better. That is not the way he argues with us. And to those who are kind of not so much at the risk of abandoning the faith, but are just kind of tired of the slog through life, 
I want to ask you this question. Really, what is it that would compel a person to give up everything they know and everything they think about to follow this Jesus completely? What is compelling about him that you might listen to and understand that might be like, I want to go find out about that. Is there anything? I think Luke gives us an insight into this that I'm going to look at through three different windows, okay? The first, we need to ask a question about the truth about facts. Secondly, the trustworthiness of the Bible. And then finally, the power of story. Guess that? The truth about facts, the trustworthiness of the Bible, and the power of story. First of all, the truth about facts. Look, right out of the gate, Luke doesn't seem to ask you to jettison your mind before you can come and consider the truth claims of Jesus. Look at how he talks there in the passage. He talks about the fact that they consulted eyewitnesses. And what did he do? He followed all things closely. And the account he's giving to us is what? It's orderly. And in the end, it will bring you certainty. Look, people who knowingly write things that they are intending to take as historical facts, that are made up myths, they don't talk that way. Look, for the college students here, before you graduate from this fair institution, you are bound to have a professor say something to you along these lines. You can have your faith. That's cool. No one is going to object to you for your faith. But in this classroom, we're going to deal with facts. Think of the logic. The two are pitted against one another, aren't they? But I want to submit to you this morning, and we don't have a lot of time to develop this, but faith and facts are a little more closely intertwined than that professor might think. And we have a perfect example of it in our modern conversation, is that what we call it? Around the topic of fake news. Everybody wants to talk about fake news. And I have this feeling that somewhere there's a, there's a philosophy professor who's just giddy because at last his life is relevant in a way in which it wasn't before. How do you know whether news is fake or it's not? Am I the only one who has found yourself in a moment of sort of flipping on Fox News? And they look up and they're like, CNN is pushing fake news on us again. And then you flip over to CNN and they're like, Fox News has lied again. And you start to think... Who is telling the truth? And how will we know? And what happens is you begin to start to suspect that it's almost as if everybody is kind of looking at the world around them through a grid. There's this filter that's over their minds that is kind of catching the stuff that really they just kind of want to catch along the way. And that in the end, it's hard to do that. I'm assuming that for a university community, they live with a grid that is scientific in nature, that if you can test it, then you can finally know it. For those who are sort of your more, you know, suburban American types, we might have a grid that says, I have a right to live my life my own way. And that's how they organize their world. But here's the thing I simply want to appeal to you this morning of. Those grids, these filters, are funny because they can't be tested in a science lab. And in many ways, they really can't even be proven. Those most basic assumptions about life are assumed, you ready for this? By faith. It's an act of faith that people look and say, I'm going to look at the world through this posture. And a Christian is the one who's simply saying, only in Jesus have I found a grid 
that can help me make sense of all the stuff in the world. That's a very different way of saying we feel like our proof is better than your proof. But all I want to say, again, people are being like, I thought you said this wasn't philosophy 101. I'm not going to bore you with that. I just want you to think about the fact that we're dealing with these grids and therefore those things are accepted by faith and our faith and, our, and what we'll call facts are very closely tied. It's not quite as tidy, is it? That brings me to the second point though, and that is the trustworthiness of the Bible. It's a huge barrier for people when they question Christianity. I realize that Christianity is a religion of the book, but can I trust that book? Is that book something I can rely upon? Yeah, we have a generation that has become very adept at seeing through things. You know what I mean by that? That is, they look and they try to sort of deconstruct what people are saying and listen to what you're saying. Like, no, 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 no. What you're really saying is this. You've done it before when you've watched television. You've thought to yourself when someone gets up in front of a podium, you think to yourself, huh, I wonder what this person's angle is. You're probably doing it right now to me, quite frankly. What's their angle? Well, people have been doing that to the Bible for forever. They'll say to themselves, well, you know, you got to understand, these were primitive people who talked this way. I mean, they made stuff up all the time. They really believed in all this weird world of miracles and supernatural stuff. That was just the way they were because they were that way, right? There are churches here in Oxford who believe that very self-same thing, that the stories themselves, they don't matter if they're true, Just look for the moral of the story, and that'll lead you into the truth. But here's my question for you. Is that what Luke says he's doing? Is that what he says he's doing? Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, Reasons for God, which I would warmly recommend to any of you, says that there are a number of things that at least ought to make us stop and think about whether or not this book that we have is a reliable document. I chose two of them that I think are kind of interesting to me. Maybe you'll find them interesting to you. He says, first of all, you've got to understand that these accounts that we have in your written Bible were written way too early for people to have just made it up. Here's what what I mean by that. Let's imagine for a second that I've decided that I'm going to start a cult. Someone in the last service told me that I got everyone's attention when I said, I'm starting a cult. I'm not saying I'm starting a cult. I'm using it as an illustration. Let's say I wanted to start a cult that kind of went a little like this. About 30 or 40 years ago, there was a guy here in Oxford who did some things, he taught some stuff, and then he died, but then after he died, he rose again from the dead. And so I'm starting my new movement, right? I'm going to start on this guy from Oxford who did all these things. Well, how much traction is my little movement going to get in this town? You might realize that one of the biggest problems I'm going to have is with people who were here 30, 40 years ago. Some of you in this room were in this town at that time. And how easy it would be for you to stand and be like, "Um, I was here 34 years ago. That never happened. I never heard about it. Never happened to me. It wasn't there. In other words, there would be people that could immediately falsify my claims to say that this person actually existed. Well, here's the point. The documents that we have in the New Testament, we know, were written to within, you guessed it, 30 to 40 years after the events happened. Well, how do you explain the historical fact? This is not an argument. The historical fact that Christianity had a meteoric rise to the within 300 years taking over the entire Roman Empire. 
How do you account for that fact when when the documents were written, there were plenty of people who had been like, I didn't hear anything about anybody rising from the dead. I was in Jerusalem at that time. But see, that didn't happen. What does it mean? It means that they must be reliable documents. Secondly, though, there's another sort of idea here uh, where it talks about how the the Gospels contain writings that just feel authentic by their details. There's these weird moments throughout the New Testament that mention these really unimportant details to the story. Uh, uh, one of the ones that Keller mentions is from Mark chapter 4, where it talks about Jesus being in a boat and, and, the, and a storm comes up. Remember the stories with his disciples in the storm? And one of the things it says in the narrative there is that Jesus was asleep in the front of the boat with his head on a cushion. Let me ask you a question. What's the significance of the cushion? There is no significance to the cushion. But the fact that someone mentioned that there was a cushion makes you realize they were there because that's the way people talk when they are there. You can imagine if I told you that there was something that happened last week on campus and I pulled out of the parking lot here and took a left on University Avenue and I drove up to four corners up there past the bank, you know, the Bank Corp South Bank. And as I got there, somebody ran the red light and T-boned me right on the side. Now, did the, did the fact that that was Bank Corp South up on the hill up here add something to the story? No. But that's how people talk when they were really there. One of my favorite illustrations comes from the end of, of the Gospel of John. <laughs> In John 21, Jesus is calling out to his disciples. I think it's Peter and John. And they're fishing. If they hadn't caught anything. And Jesus is like, try the other side of the boat. And they fish on the other side of the boat. And they have this huge catch of fish. And then the text says this. And they counted the fish... And there were 153 fish. And for years, you've got Bible people being like, what's the significance of the 153? What could that be? You know, end times prophecies must have something to do with that 153 fish. No. The, the reason why they put that detail in there is because people were actually there. That's the way you talk when you were an eyewitness. You know, as a matter of fact, it was 153 fish. I, I was, it was blew us away. We couldn't imagine it. Look, the point is this. These documents have the ring of truth. And the argument from the Christian community is simply saying, we find this document to be reliable. Does that mean that it's all obvious and easy? No. But we believe there is a fundamental posture of infallibility as we approach these documents, that we can trust every word of them, and we can trust all of ourselves to them. Which brings me to the last point, which is the power of story. Why would this discussion of stories be so interesting? Well, I think Luke's most daring claim happens in verse 4. Because he's talking to this guy, Theophilus. If you literally translate the name Theophilus, it means lover of God. Uh, And the fact that he is almost excellent Theophilus means he's probably an educated person. He could have gotten a degree from an institution like the University of Mississippi. And what does he say? He says, I'm going to say these things to you so that I can give you certainty. The word there could actually be translated infallibility. In other words, the whole reason why I'm taking up to write this out for you is so that you can know for certain that the things you've heard about are true. But here's what's weird. What's weird is how we're going to get certain about this whole thing. Uh, One of my favorite commentators on the Gospel of Luke is by Michael Wilcock, and he says this. He says, how will we come by certainty? By some mystical experience? By a deep study of philosophy? No. But by reading and meditating on the plain facts 
of the story of Jesus. Wow. Set out here in my gospel. That is where you may come to know the basic certainties of life. Man, for some of us, this is exactly where we are. <laughs> you ever found yourself just kind of waiting for God to strike you with lightning? To bring one of those sort of events in your life that can be explained by no other thing than the fact that it was God? If I could just see a miracle and then I'll give my life to Him? Or maybe you want to figure it out. I'm still thinking through this Christianity thing. Well, the Bible says I'm not, it's not going to come to you that way. <laughs> it's not going to come that way. Certainty is going to come to you. I used to wonder why it was that God didn't write a Bible that was full of philosophical proofs to sort of shut my professor's mouth up. Why didn't he give me a treatise on the historical reliability of the Gospels? <laughs> why didn't he provide those things? That seems like that would have been much more helpful. Unless he gave us the best thing that we could have, which are the stories. Anglican minister Dick Lucas is quoted as saying, God did not give his people an airtight argument, but an airtight person. What does that mean? Well, it means, what it means for us is one of the most fundamental, one of the most fundamental truths of the Christian faith that distinguishes us from other world religions, and that's this. That it is not the teachings of Jesus that save you, but the actions of Jesus that do. And this is completely unique. If it's the teachings of Jesus that save you, then what really matters is the way that you live. That's the most fundamental issue. And in every other religion, it's not so much significant what they did, but it's what they said. Buddha laid out a path. Allah laid down his iron will. Do this and you will live. It's how you live that saves you. But Christianity comes to you as a story, which means that what saves you is what he did. Don't get me wrong. Jesus taught a lot. Jesus instructed a whole lot about how we should live. But the instructions for how we lived do not come in a context all by themselves as if those things could make me a Christian. What makes us a Christian are the actions that Jesus did. It's the story. And what I find interesting is, is our culture is realizing that that's absolutely true. I was reading an article uh, this week in, um, on a, my little favorite website. It's called Lifehacker. It's a lot of fun. And they were talking about the power of story when they mentioned this. They said in 1748, a British politician and aristocrat named John Montague, also known as the fourth Earl of Sandwich, spent a lot of time playing cards. Well, he greatly enjoyed eating a snack while he was playing cards, and he liked to keep one hand free for the card. So he came with the idea of placing some meat between two pieces of toast, which would allow him to be able to play cards and eat at the same time. Well, his newly invented sandwich suddenly became the universal name for meat between two slices of bread. Well, the article goes on to say that the most interesting thing about this is that you're very likely... You'll never, we'll never forget the story of how the sandwich came about than if I had just kind of given you the facts. A sandwich is, in its basic form, a bread with meat in between. You never remember that. But when you're wrapping in the mental image of a person sitting down with cards and a sandwich in his hand, you know what? It sticks with you. Why? I read a, a book this summer by a guy named Daniel Coyle called The Culture Code. And it's a little bit about how to make your business a, a, have a better culture in the business. And one of the things he says about that is you've got to identify and celebrate your, your business's stories. 
The stories are what's key. I love this. This is a great quote. He says, you know, we tend to use the word story casually as if stories and narratives were these decorations for an unchanging and underlying reality. He says, but the deeper neurological truth is that stories do not cloak reality. They create it, triggering cascades of perception and motivation. And the proof is in the brain scans. (laughs) Bear with me for a minute. Brain scans. What, What did you learn at church this morning? Brain scans. He says, when we hear a fact, a few isolated areas of our brain kind of light up, translating words and meanings. But when we hear a story, however, our brains light up like Las Vegas, tracing the chains of cause, effect, and meaning. And he finishes with this. This was the poetry that moved me. He says, stories are not just stories. They are the best invention ever created for delivering mental models that drive behavior. What's he saying? I'm guessing that there's no one in the room who ever described their Christianity as a mental model that drove behavior. But I'll say that I think is true. Isn't it fascinating how many times people tell the story of Christianity around their stories? What was it that brought you to faith? My guess is it was somebody just sitting down and telling you their story. That they begin to show the fingerprints of God on their life and what happened. Suddenly it washed you away. My guess is there was no logical argument that sort of fixed all the little loose ends. It was a story. Now, here's my question. Why does that happen? It happens because human history, reality itself, is a story that God is telling. It literally is His story. And since we are created in the image of a God like that, then our stories move us. They build us up. We build our lives upon them. You know what they become? They become our grid. (laughs) They become our filter. They're the way that we look at everything. Because the gospel is a story. But you know what's crazy? It's a true story. It actually happened. Real events in human life that means that Jesus came to do something for you. Not merely to instruct you how to live, which he certainly will do. But to do something for you. And so here's what we're going to do. For about the next nine months, we're going to take a story from the life of Jesus. And we're going to ask ourselves this question, what would possibly be compelling about this man that would make me want to give up my life, make me give up my family, make me give up every earthly comfort just to get him? And all I'm asking you for, for the next nine months, is a little curiosity. Have you ever thought to yourself, okay, put, put, put us to the test. Is it true or is it not? Is there something in here that could resonate with you, maybe? Something worth praying for. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, lead us into that thirst, because for a lot of us, we don't even realize that we thirst. We need to know what you have for us. We need to see the stories with new eyes. Father, some of us are clogged up because we really don't understand that conversation about faith and facts. We still struggle with whether or not we've got a grid at all. Some of us, Father, are really worried about the book of the Bible. We don't know that it can be trusted. But we pray that you would give us at least a period of time where we pulled back and looked at some stories. Because for whatever reason, for generation after generation, when your story was told, Lord Jesus, people changed. And we want that. So would you do that for us? Maybe even start this morning. But we ask it all in Jesus' name.